the song we have just sung, we acknowledged that we need the Lord's help to prepare us to live a life of uh, purity, a life of holiness, um, a life that is tried and found to be true. Uh, the Lord allows us to, incur, to experience uh, various trials in our lives, uh, and those trials often are aimed to reveal and to disclose what is, what is going on in our own hearts and, and hearts and lives. And we need the Lord's grace uh, to enable us to be found not only tried, but to be found true, to be found pure uh, in our devotion to the Lord. Um, as we approach this uh, season of thanksgiving, uh, friends, let us remember that uh, the life that Christ calls us to live as a sanctuary is not only a life that we are called to live by ourselves. Uh, if there's one thing I would tweak in the song we have just sung, is that it's not supposed to be just, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, but prepare us to be a sanctuary. We as a church as well are a sanctuary in which the Holy Spirit dwells. God dwells through the Holy Spirit, uh, and we're called to live and watch over one another, to encourage, to support, to exhort, to confront when needed. Part of what it means to be a church is to recognize the responsibility we have towards one another, uh, to encourage us in the path, in the journey, uh, to live for the Lord, to increase in our purity and our, um, our uh, holiness, not because of what we do but of ourselves, because of what Christ has done for us. Well, this morning, we are continuing our sermon series to the book of Revelation, and uh, we are working our way through the very first few part of this book, the very first few chapters, particularly chapter 2. Uh, we'll be reading from verse 12 to verse 29. Uh, God's word this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, from verse 12 to 29. If you do not have a Bible, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 1029, uh, 1029. And this is uh, the word of the Lord for us this morning as a congregation. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. 
And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow your head with me in prayer and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have given us the revelation of your will. You have given us the revelation that you have entrusted to Jesus. Father, we are here privileged to hear your word. Would you speak to us? Would you open our hearts and our minds to understand your word? Would you enable us, O Lord, to hear it in a way that leads us to repentance, lead us to, leads us to understand what you desire of us so that we might be conquerors. We pray all this for the glory of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Friends, we have uh, looked last week at how Jesus cares deeply about the local church. As we began looking more closely at the messages, the seven messages that Jesus speaks and writes to the churches uh, of Revelation, we have seen that Jesus cares deeply about the local church. But what does Jesus care about in the local church? What does Jesus care about in the local church? Last week, we looked at two realities that Jesus wants to see in every church. Uh, love and readiness to suffer. Uh, the call to the church in Ephesus was a call to return to the love they had at first. Because apparently as they grew in their, in their walk together as a church, they have abandoned the love they had at first when they came to, to believe in Jesus. Becoming a Christian changes what we love. Changes the love from love of self, from love of sin, and now to love God, to love His Word, to love His people. Jesus cares deeply when a local church abandons the love they have experienced at first. And Jesus calls us to examine if our own love now is somehow less than what it was when we have believed in Jesus, when we have turned to Jesus. Jesus also cares that the church be ready to suffer. Should God allow suffering to come as he did allow suffering to come to the church in Smyrna? We saw how Jesus encouraged the church in Smyrna to look beyond what they were about to suffer and gaze at Christ who died and came to life. When we look at Christ, our suffering is not in vain. Quite the opposite. We can look to Jesus knowing that just as He rose from the dead, He will give the crown of life to all those who remain faithful to Him in suffering, even suffering unto death. Well, those are two things that Jesus cared about uh, in the first two uh, messages that He gave to the first two churches in Revelation. Today, as we look at Jesus' Uh, further messages, his next two messages he gives to two other churches, we get to hear about another reality that Jesus cares about deeply. He cares deeply about this reality that he's going to expose. And, and actually, the two churches that Jesus is writing to, the church in Pergamum and the church in Thyatira, they both struggled with the same problem. Both churches have a similar, a similar challenge that Jesus exposed. What is the challenge? They allowed 
both churches allowed compromise with idolatry and with a pagan culture to become a part of their Christian lives and of their life as a church. Have you ever considered that Jesus cares deeply about the danger of compromising with idolatry or with the values of the pagan culture around us? In these two messages that Jesus gives to the two churches of Pergamum and Thyatira, we will see um, how Jesus exposes their compromise. Jesus not only calls a church to resist compromise, but Jesus also threatens them that if they don't repent, Jesus threatens them to come to them and fight against them. So let's look closely at how Jesus exposes the compromise that these two churches allowed to grow, the compromise that these churches allowed to grow in their midst. And as we look at both churches, we can learn two major, two important lessons about resisting compromise. Uh, There are two big ideas we're going to look at, and under each of them there's going to be a number of of little lessons we're going to learn. But the big two things that we're going to see this morning from both of these churches that have the same struggle, uh, the two, two lessons about resisting compromise are the following. The first one is the following lesson. Past faithfulness is not a shield for present. Interesting, describing Pergamum as a place where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, may catch your attention. Who would like to live in such a city? Known to be the place where Satan's throne is or where Satan dwells. What does that mean? That Pergamum was the place where Satan dwells or the place where Satan's throne is. We should not assume that there was a physical throne uh, called a throne of Satan. Rather, just as in Smyrna, Remember the the earlier church, the previous church, the Jews who were gathered in the synagogue uh, were called by Christ a synagogue of Satan. Remember that in Smyrna? Um, Here, Christ identifies the city as a place where Satan exercises authority. In what way? Well, Pergamum was a city that hosted uh, two broad aspects of ancient life that associated it. Uh, or at least Christ finds an association between that and Satan. First of all, Pergamum was a home for many temples dedicated to a large selection of gods. Now, big, church, big, uh, big cities in ancient, uh, in ancient society often had temples devoted to pagan gods. But Pergamum was especially known for having the largest amount of temples Uh, dedicated to pagan gods. Let me give you an example today. If you were to go to Washington, D.C., there's many attractional things to visit and to to visit and be a tourist in in Washington, D.C., but one of the particular characteristics of the city is that it has a great number of museums, and they're all on uh, the National Mall. Uh, So you can visit a number of touristic places in D.C., but one of the sweet things to visit is all the museums. Uh, Well, Pergamum was known for a number of things. But among them, one of the characteristics of Pergamum was its great number of temples that were dedicated to pagan gods. Not only that, but Pergamum had a significant hill uh, behind the city, and uh, that hill was the site where many of these pagan temples uh, were built. In the book of Revelation, the one who leads people astray from worshiping the true God is Satan. Yes, there are human means, there's there's human institutions or or organizations that promote the worship uh, of something other than the true God, but The book of Revelation identifies that the ultimate cause that leads people away from worshiping the true, the one true God is Satan himself. So no wonder that the variety, the great number of temples dedicated to to pagan gods uh, identifies Pergamum as a place where Satan dwells. 
He's, it's a center that was leading the ancient society away from the true God and pursuing all other false gods. A second reason why Pergamon was, was potentially considered an association with Satan's throne is that Pergamon was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Now, because of that, it was a center that promoted emperor worship. Uh, the Romans didn't simply want people to submit to Rome and to pay taxes to Rome. Uh, Rome also promoted the worship of its emperors throughout the empire. Uh, this was the, what was known in ancient times, the imperial cult of the Roman Empire. And Pergamum, being the center of Roman rule in Asia, no wonder that uh, it was also the place that promoted uh, emperor worship. So Christ identifies Pergamum as a place where Satan's throne is. Christ here is not seeking to demonize the Roman Empire, but he, Christ is showing that when the systems of power are used to pressure Christians to worship something other than God, they are, in essence, mechanisms used by Satan to come after God's people. Pergamum may have been a great city for its Roman connections, Pergamon may have been a very strategic city for its powerful politics with Rome, but it was a difficult place for Christians to live in because Satan was working through these elements, through the politics, through the, through the imperial cult to pressure Christians to turn away from Christ. So Christ affirms uh, the church uh, in, in uh, Pergamon and tells them, you are living in a difficult place. And Christ commends him for holding fast to his name and specifically for not denying faith in Christ even when Antipas was killed there. Here for the only, the only believer called by name in the book of Revelation, the only believer identified by name in the book of Revelation is Antipas. And Jesus gives him a, a wonderful title, My Faithful Witness. Obviously, in the past, this church in Pergamum already experienced some degree of, of threat, of persecution, and Antipas was one of those who would rather die than compromise and give up faith in Jesus, um, and he would rather give up his life than compromise with the idolatry that was going on in Pergamum. Christ commends the church in Pergamum for its past faithfulness. But now, when Christ is, reading, is writing this message to Pergamum, the church of Pergamum was facing a different danger. Not from without, or not merely from without, but also from within. They resisted giving in under the pressure of persecution, but they were not prepared to resist the lure of compromise. And a number of members in the church of Pergamum gave in to a life of compromising with a pagan culture in, the, in their city. So Christ says in verse 14, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Christ brings up the reference to the Nicolaitans um, already uh, in the church in Ephesus. If you were with us uh, last week, you remember that the church in Ephesus was able to discern the false teaching of the Nicolaitans and rejected it. Christ commended the church in Ephesus for hating the works of the Nicolaitans because he says, I am hating them too. But the church in Pergamum was a different situation. The church in Pergamum did not see the danger of the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, who were the Nicolaitans? We don't know much information about them. Uh, what is clear is that they were teaching a same message or similar message as uh, Balaam taught Balak in the book of Numbers. Now, what what is that story about? Well, we read part of it earlier in our service. Balak was the king of Moab, and he feared the Israelites who had just been freed from Egypt and were on their way to the promised land. 
and, and, and the king of Moab hears that this nation is coming through and nobody can stop them because God is with them. So Balak has an idea. Let me hire a prophet or a, gent- a, a Gentile prophet who would come and curse this people so that they could stop against, uh, their invasion uh, of, of the land. So Balak calls Balaam to curse the people of Israel in three attempts. God stops Balaam from cursing the people of God. Instead, every time, Balaam utters not a curse, but a blessing. You can read that in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. Since Since cursing God's people was not going to work, Balaam suggested a different strategy. Balaam suggested to Balak that the way to get God's people in trouble is not to curse them, but to have the Moabite women lure the men of Israel to bring them to eat and worship pagan gods and to commit sexual immorality. And that is clearly described in Numbers 31, 16. Balaam became known in the rest of the Bible as a teacher who suggested that God's enemies can entice God's people to turn their attention to idols. That's exactly what happened in Numbers 25. And God killed 24,000 men in Israel for that horrible compromise. Throughout the Old Testament, the trap of idolatry not only involved sexual immorality often, but the trap of idolatry is often presented in the Bible as playing the harlot, spiritually speaking. The teaching of Balaam was a teaching that lures God's people to begin worshiping other gods alongside the one true God. Balaam eventually died, but his pattern stayed throughout the Bible. And we hear of Balaam in the book of Second Peter. We hear of Balaam in Jude. At the end of the first century AD, the Nicolaitans were a movement inside the church, a movement among God's people, a movement that infiltrated the churches of Asia Minor and taught the same dangerous teaching that Balaam had suggested Uh, centuries before to Balak. In the first century, the Nicolaitans believed that Christians can participate in eating the food and honoring the gods of the Roman pagan society and still be a Christian. Christ identifies them as playing the harlot, as engaging in sexual immorality. Now, it's true that many of the pagan feasts in the first century also Involved sexual activities. But the focus of bringing the charge of sexual immorality here is to show that idolatry is spiritual harlotry. In Revelation, the most often mentioned danger that the church is facing is not persecution, but idolatry. Luring people to begin worshiping something other than the true God. And the book of Revelation presents the people of the earth as worshiping either the true God or worshiping the dragon. There's no middle. There's no neutral ground. Idolatry, dear friends, is when we live for, when we put, put our hopes and dreams in something other than the true God. Idolatry is running after something or someone other than God. The Nicolaitans We're not trying to de-Christianize the people in the church. We should should be very clear about that. The the Nicolaitans were not trying to de-church people. The Nicolaitans were simply teaching that you can worship God, that you can be a good Christian, and at the same time keep engaging in the pagan festivities that honored the pagan gods. The spirit of Balaam, dear friends, The spirit of the Nicolaitans is alive today. Whenever you hear that you can worship God while keeping your idols too, 
that it's not a big deal. Let me take some examples from our culture today. And I'll bring one that uh, is very common today uh, among us. Uh, there are people who say that in engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage is not a big deal today. Some might, some even, some even Christians might say that since uh, this is happening so often among Christians, perhaps it's not that big of a deal after all. But friends, sexual immorality is a form of idolatry. For it means that we are taking our cues not from what God says in His Word about sexual purity, but from what our culture tells us or from what our feelings tells us. And Jesus calls the church in Pergamum to repent. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. Now, what does it look like for the church in Pergamum to repent? First of all, it means that they would accept what Jesus declares about their compromise and, uh, and, and they agree to turn, to resist it, and to confront those in the church who live in it so that they might turn away from it. It's interesting that Jesus calls the whole church to repent, not only the people who are falling in the compromise. Friends, do you think that it's the church's business to call its members who are trapped in idolatry and compromise? Do you think that it's the church's business to call them to repent and turn away from idolatry and compromise? I say that because I've heard a believer at one point say, Pastor, my sin is none of your business. And I'm not making this up. I'm asking you, do you think that it's a church's business to call the people who fall in idolatry, the people in its midst. And I'm not talking about the pagan world out there. I'm not talking about those who are not part of the church. I'm talking those who are in the church. To call them to repent of idolatry and of compromise. Is it the church's business to call for them to repent? Do you think it's loving for a church to do that to the members who are falling into compromise and, and idolatry. Notice what is at stake if a church fails to do it. Notice what's at stake if a church chooses to do that which many churches today, sadly, uh, have taken the posture of doing. We're just not going to go there. Um, we're just going to try to preach love and try to preach acceptance, and we're just not going to go confronting or telling people to repent and turn away from their idolatry or from their compromise. Notice what is at stake if churches don't call people to repent, and if, church, if people don't repent. Verse 16, if not, here's what Jesus says, if not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, to fail to confront those who live in compromise or to fail to repent triggers the threat that Christ will come to that church to wage war against them with the sword of his mouth. Now here's why this is a huge deal. The only other time in the book of Revelation where we see Jesus waging war with a sword that's coming out of his mouth is in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, Christ is presented as waging in battle with all the nations of the earth who have resisted him. And that battle is a bloody battle. The nations all lose, and Christ is victorious over all the nations and all the kings who will have resisted him. And we're looking forward to that day, we might say. But here, Christ says, that he is ready to take on that role as a warrior before the end of the age. And he's ready to take on his role as a warrior to come and carry out the battle in the midst of the church in Pergamon against the members of the church. Failing to repent of compromise in our worship of God leads Christ to come and wage war against us. As I read this solution, 
I could not help but wonder, Lord, why are you bringing out your sword against those who promote compromise in the church, but you did not bring out your sword against those who persecuted the church, as was the case in Smyrna? You know, if it was after me, I would have rather have Jesus come out with a sword of his mouth and wage war against the persecutors of Smyrna. They are the ones who need God to show up or Christ to show up as a warrior. But in Smyrna, Jesus didn't do that. He comes as a warrior, and it's amazing. He comes as a warrior, not in Smyrna, but in Pergamum. It is amazing, dear friends, that Christ finds compromise in the church to be a greater threat than persecution. Persecution does not trigger Christ to bring his sword, but compromise does. And that should bring us chills. Friends, I wonder if, if we see the danger of compromising our worship of God as being of greater danger than the threat of persecution. Ask yourself, what scares you most? Suffering or compromise? Friends, part of what it means to, to be a church and to be a member in a church is that we commit to watch over ourselves and one another not to fall in the lure of sin and compromise. And when we do fall in the lure of sin and compromise, we call each other to repent. We call each other to turn away from that direction and come back to the Lord and pursue the Lord together. Oh, friends, part of what it means to be a church is not that we expect or demand perfection, but that when we falter, we don't stay there. We don't, we don't stay in the pursuit of, of continuously living in, in known sin, but we turn around and, and ask the Lord to forgive and, and ask the Lord to give us the grace to, to forsake sin and, and to pursue righteousness. And we rely on one another to do that well. Just as Jesus charges the entire church to deal with those who have compromised, we need one another. We need the entire church to awaken us to the dangers that we can fall into. That is why, as a church, we have taken seriously the call to do church discipline so that we can confront each other when we are lured in the traps of compromise. Jesus gives a wonderful promise in verse 17. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. How amazing that these believers, um, while the, they were lured to eat the food devoted to idols, the Spirit promises to give them a better food, a hidden manna. A manna that they don't see right now. It's not a manna that's tangible to their sensory experiences. But nevertheless, it is a food that the Lord prepares for them. Now, why is the Spirit promising another food uh, here to the church in Pergamum? Again, remember the story of Balaam and Balak? In Numbers 25, when the women of Moab lured the men of Israel. How did they start the lure? By inviting them to eat the food offered to idols and bowed down to their gods and eventually led to sexual immorality. In other words, idolatry, in the case of Balaam and Balak and Moab and Israel, idolatry started with an invitation to a meal. But in the wilderness, God had provided for the Israelites the daily manna. That was the food God had given them. But the Israelites were not content with the manna God provided. They were lured by the meal offered by the Moabite women as they worshipped their gods. Here Christ promises the believers in Pergamum to give them a better food, a hidden manna, a manna that is right now hidden from their eyes, but they will get to experience it in the New Jerusalem. 
And no wonder in Revelation 19, the very same passage where Christ appears as a warrior with, with his sword coming out of his mouth, battling against the nations, in the same chapter, Christ promises and invites people to the supper banquet of the Lamb. Well, friends, the question is, will we be lured to eat the food sacrificed to idols, which we could enjoy immediately, right now? Or will we forego the food idolatry offers us in order to save ourselves for another meal which God prepares for His people? Now, we may not today think of idolatry as an actual meal. But here, the point, the imagery is, whatever we take in, whatever it is that satisfies our, our appetites as a, as a means of worshiping gods, idols, other than the one true God. Oh, friends, whatever that is for you, God is saying, forgo that. I am preparing a better meal for you. It is not an accident, dear friends, that Jesus identified his own body as a better meal than the manna God had provided in the wilderness. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. Oh, friends, when we take the Lord's Supper, we take it as a meal. And it's in anticipation. Not only it turns us back to, to the death of Christ, but it's also looking forward to His coming. And it's in anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. God promises us a better meal. Next week, Lord willing, we will be invited to partake of the Lord's Supper. I pray that you would consider yourself. I pray that you would examine yourself in light of, in light of God's uh, sacrifice in Christ Jesus of what it means to forego the food offered to idols and instead take the manna, the food that Christ promises us. The second benefit Christ gives is a white stone with a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To receive a white stone with a secret name has been interpreted in many ways, and there's a number of interpretations. One thing is pretty sure, receiving a name that no one knows is a feature that describes Christ in Revelation 19 as well. Having a new name is not a big deal today. You can change your name for a couple hundred dollars uh, if you go to the courthouse. But in the Bible, changing a name was a huge, a huge significance. It meant that you are changing your identity. It meant that you are changing your, your character. So when the Spirit promises believers a white stone with a name that is not known, it's a way of saying you'll receive a new status. You'll receive a new identity. That identity and that status, society around you right now does not know. Those who, those who receive that new name may know what that new name is, but others can't understand it. The question is, are you okay to receive an identity that this world, the world you live in, does not identify with, cannot understand, cannot comprehend? It's look, it looks weird. Both the rewards that Christ offers them are, are rewards that cannot be cashed out here and now. They are to be revealed and fully enjoyed only when Christ returns. Past faithfulness, dear friends, is not a shield for, for present compromise. We need ongoing vigilance to resist compromising our worship. And Christ moves on to the church in Thyatira. Uh, he the message is the same, but the intensity of the problem in the church in Thyatira has went, has went even, even further. Here, Jesus calls them to repent and to resist uh, compromise, but the call of Jesus comes with a greater force and with more details. And here's a second lesson we learn as we look at the church in Thyatira. The second principle that Jesus teaches us about resisting compromise is the following. Great accomplishments do not excuse compromise. Great accomplishments do not excuse compromise. We live in a day and time when churches are encouraged to turn a blind eye to compromise. Today, if we see church attendance increase, if we see church activities growing, if we see the reports of the life of the church going up, we think that all must be going well with that church. Not so 
in the eyes of Jesus. Notice how many good things the church affirms about the church in Thyatira. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And listen to the next one. And that your later works exceed the first. Oh, this is wonderful stuff going on in the church of Thyatira. You know, this is a church you want to be a part of. Things are going well. Things are increasing. Their love, their service, their, their good works, their patient endurance. But when Christ addresses them now, the church did not have the backbone to confront a false teacher that encouraged others to live with compromise. The church in Thyatira may do great in showing love and service, but that does not give them an excuse to allow false teaching to flourish in their midst. So what does is, what is Christ expose as wrong? Look at verse 20. He says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Friends, it's hard to miss the continuity between what was wrong in Pergamum and what's wrong in Thyatira. Both churches struggled with the same problem, but in Thyatira, the problem is even more advanced. As one commentator said, the, the Thyatiran Jezebel is probably some prominent woman within the church who, like her Old Testament counterpart, was influencing the people of God to forsake loyalty to God by promoting a tolerance toward and involvement in pagan practices. So Christ says to the church, I have this against you. He doesn't say just, I have this against Jezebel. He says, I have this against you, that you are tolerating that woman who is teaching that way. Christ is not pleased with a church that tolerates false teaching. Tolerating false teachers may look like love to some people. But Christ says, it is not love. Christ tells the church what he has offered this influential leader. He says, I've given her chance to repent, but she refused. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So what does Christ do next? Look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. This is, first of all, a quick, clear um, passage that shows that listening to false teaching is described as committing sexual immorality, committing adultery. When we listen to false teaching, it's like spiritual idolatry, spiritual uh, adultery. I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. In other words, refusing to repent of the sin of compromise triggers God's discipline, and in this case, sickness and death upon those who followed the prominent false teacher. Friends, God is gracious to offer us a chance to repent. And this is God's grace that even to a woman like Jezebel, God called her to repent. But if she refused to repent, God brings death. But notice a lesson that the church will learn. Jesus says that when he will come this way, look at verse 23, all the churches, not just Thyatira, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This is a strange lesson. Jesus doesn't say, I will give to you according to what you believe. I will hold, I will give to you according to what you accept as true. No, he says, I will give to you according to, what, to your works. In other words, the works that you do are an indication of what you truly, truly believe. This is not a salvation by works. This is more like a faith that does not produce good works is a dead faith. 
I will give you according to your works. But more importantly, what's, what's a strange lesson is that Christ's choice to bring disease and death upon the followers of Jezebel was going to prove not just to Thyatira, but to all the churches in that region that Christ knows those who compromise. Christ can see through them. Christ can see through their hearts. Christ can see in their spirits. No wonder he was described as the one who has eyes like like fire and, and feet like burnished bronze. Christ is able to penetrate beyond what we are able to show on the exterior. Christ says to the people of Thyatira that they could not hide from the eyes of Christ, from his true knowledge of those who are truly compromising with idolatry. In other words, some in the church of Thyatira may have gone to the temples, may have gone to participate in, in the, the food um, sacrifice to idols and say, oh, no one will know. I'm hiding it from the church. Nobody in church leadership knows. Nobody, none of my brothers and sisters in church know that I'm, I'm checking out the, the pagan temple. Oh, I, if, it, if no one knows, it won't bother anybody. It's not a big deal. And Jesus says, listen, when I'm coming to bring my discipline, all the churches will know that no one can hide from my eyes who can penetrate the soul and the heart. And Christ's discipline of sickness and death was going to make a separation between idolaters in the church and those who kept themselves pure in the church. Now, can you imagine, my friends, can you imagine if Christ announced a similar visitation to our local church? That Christ would make a distinction between those who are his and those who have compromised and that that distinction will show up through sickness and death in the church. By the way, this is not the first time these two show up. The Apostle Paul, when he encourages the church in Corinth to examine themselves carefully before partaking of the Lord's Supper, he says, that's why some of you are sick and some have fallen asleep. Because they have compromised. They have not been living their loyalty to God. Christ can visit a church and bring about sickness and death as measures of his discipline against that church. Can you imagine news articles entitled, Christ's visit the church in Austin, in such and such a city, and half of the membership dies? I wonder, would you have gone to the church in Thyatira and attend its service the Sunday after they received this letter? Friends, we believe the words of Jesus, that, that the words of Jesus can bring life to those who are dead in sin. And friends, if that is you this morning, if you are dead in sin, if you're not a believer, hearing the words of Christ can bring life to us. And that life manifests as we become convicted of our sin, as we become internally in turmoil and recognize that we are not right with God and we need to become right with God. That is a sign of life. And Jesus calls us to repent and turn to Him. And when we do so, we receive the life of God. But friends, this text challenges us that the opposite is also true. That when Jesus visits a church, he can also bring death to those who continue to live in compromise and refuse to repent. Friends, the Jesus of the Bible promises to visit his churches not only to bring them life, but also to kill those in the church who refuse to repent. Would you dare? Would you dare to go to a church where Jesus promises to come with sickness and death? for the members who refuse to repent of their compromise? Would we like this kind of Jesus to be among us in this kind of role? This threatening message of Christ to the local church in Thyatira may have raised great concern to all the Christians in that church, all the members of the church. And those who have not compromised might say, well, what will happen to us? Will we too be affected by the sickness, by the death? Notice what Christ says to them in verse 24. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, 
who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. In other words, once Christ cleans out the church membership role of the church of Thyatira, once Christ cleans them up of all the idolaters, Christ says to the remaining members of that church, hold on to what you have until I come. It's not about being a super Christian. It's about holding on to the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the primary recipe to fight off compromise is to be faithful to God's revelation as he revealed himself to us in the Bible. I love the quote that you, some of you have heard before. The Bible will keep you away from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. Friends, the best strategy for resisting compromise is to commit to remain faithful to God as he revealed himself in Scripture, and to commit to live that faithful living to the very end and rely on Jesus, rely on the Holy Spirit to assist you in remaining faithful to the Lord in what he calls us uh, to the end. The promise Christ gives to the conquerors helps us to understand what it means to remain faithful. Of all the letters, this is the only one where the conquerors are defined as those who keep my works until the end. Look at verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Do you see that? The one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end. In other words, who are the conquerors? Who are the conquerors? It's not merely those who said yes to Jesus when they were six, who got baptized when they were seven, and then lived the rest of their lives as they pleased and desired and had no concern about the works of Christ. Oh, friends, those are not the conquerors. The conquerors are those who persevere. Once saved, always persevering. And without perseverance, there is no, no fruit. There's no evidence that we can actually hold on to believe that true salvation has actually taken place. It's not perseverance that saves us. Perseverance shows that true salvation has taken place. Here Christ makes a strong connection between conquering and obedience. To hold on to what we have is to persevere in obedience to the testimony of Jesus and to the works that Jesus commands. The worship of the pagan gods offered the hope of being successful in the eyes of the Roman Empire. The way of compromise was easier than putting up with persecution. The way of compromise was easier than putting up with with poverty because in a Roman society like Pergamum, if you didn't participate in the Roman festivities, in the pagan worship, that meant that your, your trade, your, your business was going to suffer. You're not a prominent member in society. But it's better to be poor in society and rich towards God. It's better to be poor in the eyes of this world and to be what might seem like at the bottom of the ladder in the eyes of this world. But notice the promise God gives to the conquerors in Thyatira. He says that they will get to sit with Jesus on his throne. That, they will, that Jesus will give authority over the nations to those who conquer. And those who conquer will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Oh, friends, Jesus offers the believers of Thyatira who are afraid that if they don't, they don't participate in in, in the pagan worship, that they're going to be at the bottom of the ladder. He says, I will put you at the top of the ladder over the nations. You are going to reign with me over the nations as my Father has given me authority to reign with me over the nations. Don't you worry that you will not somehow make it to the top. But it's not in the way this world offers it to you. It's in the way I am calling you to do so. Friends, do you remember, do you remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil? Do you know what was the first and the last temptation? The first one was to eat. To eat what God did not tell him to eat. Jesus had power to turn the stones into bread. Jesus could have done it. That was not the food that God prescribed for Jesus to eat. And the last temptation was, I will give you the nations. 
if you bow down to me. My friends, the church in Thyatira and the church of Pergamum are called to learn the same lessons that Jesus himself endured in the wilderness. When he was tempted, which food are you going to take? And yes, the, the desire to rule over the nations is for in every one of us. And the world will offer us a strategy, a recipe. I will give you influence over, this, over the nations. I will give you influence in society. I will give you the, the authority you demand or you want. As long as you bow down to me. As long as you worship me. And Jesus says, oh, conquerors, don't do that. I will give you the true authority. I will, I will give you to reign with me on my throne. But hold on to what you have. Hold on to my works until the very end. Friends, compromise will always promise us more than it can deliver. Christ calls us to pay now the price of our obedience to him, even if that price is high, even if it's as it was in the case of Antipas. But holding on to the teachings of Christ and to the works of Christ is more lasting and worthy than we can obtain by ourselves. What are the works that you are tempted to pursue as a means of compromising with this world? We have seen the two messages that Christ gives to both of these churches. It's the same message, but in two different, with two different lessons. The first one, past faithfulness is not a shield for present compromise. We need ongoing vigilance. Second, great accomplishments do not excuse compromise. Christ cares more about our faithfulness than about our fruitfulness. What good is it to have a big church with lots of activities if we turn a blind eye to compromise uh, and it leads Christ to come to us and make war with us? In my early pastoral ministry here in this congregation, I remember being faced with a particular sensitive situation because of a sin issue that needed to be addressed. And I went and sought counsel Um, from a number of pastors, and one of them gave me the following response. Samuel, if you worry about these things, you will never grow that church. It became evident to me that in the eyes of that pastor, church growth was more important than addressing compromise in the church. If Christ cares about how a church handles sin, compromise, and false teaching, I dare not shepherd his church turning a blind eye to it. I dare not follow those who want to promote a Christianity that cares more about church growth than about faithfulness to Christ. That day I decided that it would be the last time I asked that pastor for advice. The church in in Pergamum and Thyatira revealed that Christ's judgments are not reserved only for those outside the church, but also for those inside the church who play the harlot with idolatry, with compromise, with unaddressed sin. They were not the only ones doing it. They even allowed and promoted teachers to stay and teach in the midst of that church. Christ calls the church to confront such compromise and to confront those who promote such compromise so that Christ's visit would not be a visit as a warrior against his people. And may that never be so of us. May we invite Christ's coming to come not, not with a sword out ready to cut and wage war against us, but with, a, with his spirit to bring life, to bring strength, to bring a zeal for love, for good works, without compromise. May we be so. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that in Jesus you give us the hidden manna. Thank you that in Jesus you give us a new identity. Thank you that in Jesus you give us a new authority over the nations that even though it's not seen and and manifested now and it's not accepted and and seen by this world around us, Father, open our eyes so that we may not be blind to the same benefits. Help us to see the true 
blessings, the true promises that we have in Christ so that our eyes, our hearts may not be lured by the benefits and the lures of this world, by the idolatries that surround us. Help us, O Lord, to be a congregation that cares well and takes well our responsibility to watch over one another. And when we do sin, to call each other graciously to repent and trust in Christ. Father, help us to be a congregation that hates the works of idolatry and that we love one another well to confront it when necessary. And help us, O Lord, to cherish you and what you promise us more than what this world promises and cherishes. We pray that in the name of Jesus and for his glory and honor. Amen.